If you've got a Bible this morning, we're in the book of Matthew, chapter 5 is where we're going to be as we continue to make our way through the Sermon on the Mount together. And Matthew chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 17, read down through verse 20, and that's what we're going to unpack together this morning. Jesus says in Matthew's gospel in chapter 5, beginning in verse 17, he says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Listen, everything in life needs some kind of foundation, some kind of support structure to rest on, doesn't it? The home in which you live or the apartment complex in which you reside currently, it needs a foundation because all the weight of that framing and the roofing and the tile and the paint colors that go on the walls that decorate your home and all the little knickknacks and accessories and shelving that you fill with all kind of stuff you have to take off and dust, right? All of that needs some kind of support structure to rest on. It needs a foundation. The vehicle that you drove here this morning in, it needs a support structure. It's called a frame, right? That, that steel frame underneath all of the engine components and underneath all of the accessories on the dashboard and underneath all of the cloth or leather seats rest is a frame that supports the weight of everything that sits on top of it. Your body has a foundation as well. It's called your feet, right? And so the, that they, they carry the weight of your body from place to place. Everything in life has some kind of foundation, some kind of support structure that it rests on. And whenever your foundation of your home is unstable, what happens? Right, the big cracks in the walls and in the brick outside, everything begins to shift and move. When you have a crack on your automobile frame, right, it's not safe to drive any longer. They either have to replace the frame, re, re, fix it in some capacity, or you have to trade that sucker in, cash it out for parts and get something new. When you have a broken bone in your foot, it hurts to walk, right? It's painful to move from place to place. And the same way that your body has a foundation and your home has a foundation, your automobile has a foundation, your life has a foundation. Your life, everybody's life rests on something. The weight of your life rests on something, right? For some, the weight of their life rests on their experiences, right? The things that have happened to them in their lives. And so every, the lens at which they're processing everything that's coming for, for them in the future or happening to them in the present are the things that have taken place in their past, so some, their experiences are really the only foundation that they're living their life on the basis of. For others, it's their reason, their intellect, right? What can I work out in my own mind? What can I process? Those who have really, really high IQs that are really smart people, right? Part of Mensa, right? Those are the individuals who tend to lean heavily on their intellect and their reasoning capacities and abilities to work things out in their mind. Some folks, it's their experiences. Other folks, it's their reason and their rational abilities. But all throughout the scriptures and through the history of the church, what we're told is that the only sure and steady foundation for our lives are the words that God has spoken, are the scriptures. And so that's what we're going to dig into this morning. And what we want to see is this, is, that, is, is the fact that when, when we talk about the Bible, right, there's folks who come from all different kinds of perspectives whenever they approach this book and how they understand this book. But we would, be, we would be very well served this morning if we were able to get to the bottom of how Jesus understands the Bible. 
How does Jesus understand the, the scriptures, that, that foundation, that support structure for our life? What, what does he understand about it? How does he view it? If, our, if the weight of our life is going to rest on it, we would do well to understand how the king of all creation, the one who's spoken everything into being and has come to redeem and restore all things, making them into his image and likeness, making our lives into his image and likeness, we would do well to understand what he thinks about this foundation. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning in Matthew chapter 5, to 7, uh, chapter 5, verses 17 to 20, is what does Jesus say about the Bible? And there's three big things I want us to see this morning. And the first one is this, is that when Jesus speaks of the Bible, he speaks of the Bible having a permanence. There's a fixedness to the Bible that is ageless. So the, the, the permanence of the Bible is, it transcends every time and every culture. And so what we might say is that the Bible is, in Jesus' mind, is never outdated. It's never antiquated. It's not reserved from some former time or place. That the Bible, in Jesus' mind, um, is not bound to any age or any generation or any location or any nationality of people. It's not bound to any uh, a group of individuals. The Bible is God's revelation of himself to all peoples in all places at all times. Look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 verse 18 when he says, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Now listen, an iota and a dot in the Hebrew language were Jesus is referring to the Hebrew Bible, but in the Hebrew language, the, in the, the Yoda and the dot were the smallest character and the smallest stroke of the pen, right? And so the smallest character, like, like we might think of like the, the, the smallest dot of an I on the top of an I, or the smallest crossbar on a T as we make a cross on the T, or the smallest character within the Hebrew alphabet. He says, and there's not one of those smallest letters or smallest markings in all of the scriptures that's going to pass away until it's all been accomplished. So Jesus says it's not reserved for some former time or other place. Jesus says that every single letter of every single word of the scriptures will stand and will stand firm until everything is accomplished. In fact, he says heaven and earth will pass away before everything in the Bible passes away. It will never pass away, he says. He says out of everything that we believe to be fixed in the world, he says the Bible is the thing that is most fixed. The scriptures are the things that are most stable and permanent. You might say it this way. In other words, the Bible is hard copy, right? It's hard copy. And when an author writes a work, right, if you go to the bookstore and you pick up a book off of any shelf at the bookstore, at the very front of that book, near the title page of the book, you're going to find this little copyright seal there in the book. And it's going to, to, to verify who wrote it when, and when they wrote it and when it was copyrighted, whenever that ink set to that page so in other words, to say it's fixed, it's permanent, you, sh- you don't have the freedom or flexibility to, m- to mess with what he's written. And whenever you think about the Bible, God is the one who owns the copyright. Even though the Bible was written by multiple men over the course of many generations and centuries, so, so Moses doesn't own the copyright of the Bible, Paul doesn't own the copyright of the Bible, Peter doesn't own the copyright of the Bible, none of the prophets in the Old Testament own the copyright of the Bible because underneath every one of their pens was the Holy Spirit superintending and overseeing the words that were being written and inspiring them so that God himself is the one who owns the copyright of the Bible and it is hard copy. It's permanent. It is fixed, Jesus says. There's a permanentness or a fixedness to the Bible. And the way that Jesus affirms this is listen to what he says because Jesus not only says here that the Bible is true, 
Right? So most Christians would say, yeah, I believe genuinely the Bible is true, but not only does Jesus say the Bible is true, but he says the Bible is coming true. It's coming true. Listen, look, look at what he says in verse 18. He says, not even the smallest stroke of the pen in the Old Testament will pass away until all is accomplished, till everything that God has written comes to pass. So Jesus says the Bible is not only true and reliable and dependable, but it's all, the reason it's true and reliable and dependable is because it's a way that God is governing all of creation, all of the world, all of the universe, and all of it will come to pass. So Jesus says every prophecy in the Old Testament, it will be fulfilled. Every promise that God has made, it will be delivered. Everything, every theme that exists in the Bible will ultimately one day be tied up and completed. Every reward that is promised will be given. Every judgment that is declared will ultimately fall. Everything will come to pass, Jesus says. Because this is the way that God is running the universe. It's not only true, but it's coming true. There's a permanentness, a fixedness to the Bible, Jesus says. Now, when you think about that permanentness to the Bible, there's a couple of differences that it makes for us in our life. And the first one is this. Um, the first one is this. Before, before we get to that practical step, let's, let's talk about one more thing. One more thing. See, how do you know if you really have the same view of the Bible that Jesus does? Right? How do you know if you look at the Bible and you go, man, there's a permanence there, there's a fixedness to the Bible? Let me, let me give you one way, one kind of benchmark, one diagnostic to know if, you, if you're looking through at the, at the scriptures through the same lens that Jesus is. And that is this, is that if you have the same view of the Bible that Jesus does as a permanentness and a fixedness to it, then whenever you get in front of it, you will feel very, very small. <laughs> You'll feel very, very small. Have you ever noticed that the things that we see, deem to be the most permanent in life are the things that are most fixed, that have the deepest roots? Whenever you get in front of them, you feel like you're just, you're, you're small in their presence. If you traveled out to California, you guys seen those pictures of massive sequoias and redwoods out there in California, right? The ones that are big enough for you to like walk through their root systems because they're so old and massive. Some of them scale up and the canopies up to the highest point is about f close to 400 feet tall. That's almost 40 stories up into the air. It's massive, massive trees. And if you stood at the base of that tree and observed its root system and you just peered upward into its canopy, right, there would be a sense in which you felt dwarfed by it. You felt small in its presence because it seems it is fixed. It's stable. It's secure. It's got roots that stretch so deep and so wide. Whenever you look up, you just feel small in its presence. Or if you've ever been to the mountains, right? Some of you, I know, have taken recently ski trips out there, right? And you get up into the mountains, into the highest peaks of the Rockies on the North American continent. They scale up to about 14,000 feet. And you stand at the base of that mountain, you look up, and you just feel so small in its presence. Because it's something outside of you that is so much bigger than you. And so whenever you stand in front of it, you feel small. You almost feel somewhat insignificant. This, this, this thing is so much bigger than me. It's not, a, not necessarily even about me. And one of the ways to know if you have the same view of the Bible that Jesus does, that it's actually fixed, that it's stable, it's secure, it's a firm foundation for life, is that whenever you open its pages, you don't tower over it, but it towers over you. You don't stand above it, you stand beneath it. 
because there's a fixedness to it. But what difference does this make? A couple of differences it makes. The first one is this. In the Bible, it's the only place that we're promised, we're promised that God's grace would flow to us. His grace would be coming to us. And it, when you look at in, in the Apostle Paul's writings, I love looking at his letters because at the beginning of his letters, he always says this to the churches that he's writing to. He says, grace and peace to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of his letters, he always says, grace and peace with you. So at the very front of his letters, at the very end of his letters, the writings that he sends to the churches in Ephesus and Philippi and Colossae and Corinth and Rome, grace is coming to you from our Lord Jesus Christ. At the end of his letter, grace be with you. And there's these bookends at the end of the Apostle Paul's letters which convey this idea that everything that God is writing to them, everything that God is saying to them through these letters is the grace of God coming to them and the grace of God remaining with them. So that when we open the Bible and we read from Genesis to Revelation, the very words of God that have a fixedness about them, they are the place in which we meet God and God meets us. That His grace is active and present in our lives as we open His word in, in a way that is not promised anywhere else. See, for, for so long, Christianity, one of the ways that it's distinguished itself from other world religions is that it says that we can have a personal, real, vital, living relationship with a God who speaks to us. And the way that he has spoken to us and the way his grace comes to us is through his word. Now, many of us think, well, the way that I feel close to God is whenever I get out in nature, right? And listen, I'll be the first one to admit that when I'm on the deck of a boat, on the side of a pond, or around a campfire at a campsite, there is kind of that peaceful, easy feeling. You know what I'm saying? Right? Your mind kind of clears of some things and you just kind of take in the beauty of God's creation. All that is wonderful and fine and good, but it is not the place that God promises to meet us with His grace active and present and showing up. It's, it's kind of like me. I, I drive a Toyota truck. It's out there in the parking lot somewhere. And I get in that truck every day. Now, there were engineers who designed that truck. There was a CEO who issued the order to make that truck. There were folks who worked on the assembly line of that truck. And as they pieced all the parts of it together, you may go, why are you in a Toyota? Well, that's just what I want, okay? <laughs> but when I drive that truck every day to and from the places and appointments and restaurants and, and shopping everywhere that I go, picking up my kids from school and dropping them off, I sit in that truck sometimes for hours a day moving around the city. But I cannot sit in that truck and go, man, I really enjoy the way they put the steering wheel and the wrap of, around it and the way that the, all the, the accessories on the dashboard work and the way that the buttons on the seats move it forward and backwards and the way that the engine starts whenever I turn the key. And I know all kind of enjoy the way this truck works and how it's been put together. But I cannot say that I have a relationship with the engineer who designed it or the CEO who commissioned it or the assembly line workers who put it together. I don't have a relationship with them. I don't have a personal relationship with them because I'm not speaking to them. They're not speaking to me. And this is where God has promised to speak and to meet and to show up with his grace. But the second way that it makes a difference in our lives is if, it's, if it's, there's a fixedness to it, a permanence to it is this, is that it provides a sure anchor in the midst of all kinds of cultural change and personal development. Listen, the winds of, of every generation and every culture will shift and blow from different directions. But if there's a permanence and a fixedness to the Bible, 
then we're not blown off course with every whim of doctrine that certainly arises from this corner of a church somewhere else along within our land or other parts of the world. It's not taken captive by every political perspective. It's not taken captive by every philosophical perspective. But there's an anchor and a steady hold that it has on us if it's fixed and permanent. But in addition to that, not only in the cultural winds that change, but also through your personal development. You know what this means? It means that the Bible is, has a permanence to it. It means that as you grow and mature through seasons of life, from the time that you are an infant to the time that you're in elementary school, to the time that you're in middle and high school. Students, some of you right now, you're trying to figure out who you are. You're trying to determine who you're going to be. And listen, while there is room within Christianity for understanding your personality and how God's wired you. Are you like a lion who roars or like a golden retriever who's super loyal or like a beaver who's very analytical or like an otter who's just really playful the life of the party, right? How your personality's wired and how your giftings are. There's room for exploration of all those things. But within the Bible, right, there is not room for us to define our identity because our identity's already been defined for us as men and women who are created in the image of God to reflect his glory and likeness back to him and to all of creation. Men and women who have fallen as a result of sin and whose lives are broken, whose hearts are bent. Men and women for whom Jesus Christ stepped into human history to live in our place and die in our place and rise from the grave to rescue, redeem, and restore us into the image of the God that we were intended to reflect at creation. And that one day he will fully and finally make all these things come true as we stand and bask in his glory and presence for all of eternity. That's our identity that's given to us through the Bible. And if the Bible is permanent and fixed, then so is that identity. We don't have freedom to define who we are for ourselves because God has defined it for us. Within that, there may all be all kinds of vocations and all kinds of giftings and all kinds of personality types. But there are some things about who we are that are fixed. There's a permanence to the scriptures. But not only is there a permanence to the scriptures, Jesus also speaks not only of the permanence of the scriptures, but he speaks of the practice of them as well. He speaks of their practice. On the heels of saying that there's a fixedness to the Bible, Listen to what Jesus says in verse 19. He says, therefore, that word therefore is an inference. In other words, because this is true, here's then what should be, right? He says in verse 19, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven, In verses 19 and 20, Jesus warns us against relaxing one of the least of these commandments or teaching others to do the same because they're fixed. Because they're fixed. Don't pull them back, Jesus says. Don't relax them, Jesus says. And he says, even the least of them. See, when most of us, we think of kind of where our lives are, we kind of, kind of have this benchmark of comparison. Well, well I'm, not, I'm not pulling back the big ones, right? Not pulling back the big ones, but maybe some of the littler ones we can relax just a little bit, right, to make them more manageable for us. But Jesus says, no, not even the least of them do you relax. And there's a couple of ways that we go about relaxing the commands of God in our day and time. And the first one is this, and it's kind of the the cultural waters in which all of us swim. 
And the first one is this, is that we tend to relax the commands of God through relativism. We relax them through relativism. Now, relativism is a, kind of one of those big 50-cent words, right? Um, that w- people are like, well, I'm not sure what that means. Here, relativism is this. Relativism essentially means this, that it's the belief that truth and morality are relative, that they're flexible from person to person, that there is no absolute truth or objective morality. In other words, it shifts, it changes from context to context, person to person, place to place. That's, that's essentially what relativism is. But for a Christian, for those who see the fixedness and permanence of the Bible, Jesus says that relativism is not an option for us because for a Christian, the practice of righteousness, the practice of the Bible, is much wider than the relativist has in mind. Because see, when, when morality and, and, and truth become relative and it shifts from person to person, place to place, time to time, culture to culture, then eventually it gets narrower and narrower and narrower. Okay? It, gets, it, it hones in over the course of time. Right? And so you end up relaxing all kinds of things outside of my little cone of what I believe truth to be, what I believe the, 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 the morality to look like, what I believe a life that's pleasing to God entails. It gets narrower. And G- Jesus says, no, listen, you can't even relax the least of them because true Christian righteousness has a width and a breadth to it. It's not narrow. It's not that God says, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Yes, that's the first and the greatest of the commandments. But when you think about the implications of that and how it flushes out in all of your life, it's not just this narrow thing and say, well, I'm loving God in my way, and you're loving God in your way, and you're loving this other person in your way, and I'm loving this other person in my way. No, there's a fixedness about that, whereas relativist, it gets narrower and narrower, and Christianity continues to spread out wider and wider and encompasses all of our life. Every aspect, it engulfs every part of who we are. Not just what takes place on Sunday mornings, not just what takes place in a life group on a, on a midweek night, but it encompasses everything that we do 24-7, Monday through Friday, 365 a year. And, so, and, and one of the problems with relativism is this, is that underneath relativism is a flawed view of freedom, of human freedom. See, most of us in this room and most of us in our culture, we think that freedom is actually an absence of restraints, right? We think in order to be free, I can't have any constraints placed on me externally. Then I would be free, right? And so that's how most of us view the concept of being free, that real freedom is breaking free from those constraints. But biblically, freedom is not the absence of restraints. But biblically, freedom is living within the constraints that fit our nature. That provide for our flourishing. And so everything's not adjustable and flexible. But there are some things that are fixed. And they're fixed that way because they're intended for my good. They're intended for me to flourish inside of God's design. Listen, I'm, 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 my blood's starting to boil just a little bit because fishing season is just around the corner, right? Um, and I, I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to getting out on the water, on the edge of a pond, and just, you know, wasting a little time most, of, most days. Um, some days, actually catching fish. Um, but for every fish that I've ever caught, whether it be on the side of a pond or off the deck of a boat, the, uh, undoubtedly, that fish, that fish, because of its nature, that fish is absolutely free in the water, Right? Because the water is the restriction that fits the nature of the fish. But as soon as I set the hook in that dude and cross his eyes, 
It's kind of what happens whenever like they think they're eating something and they actually have a hook that impales them in the mouth and they begin to fight and you reel them in and you get them up to the top of the, top of the water and you lip that sucker and pull it out of the water and you take your pictures and hold it. You gotta hold it, just a little tip for you fishermen, you gotta hold it out from your body because it makes the fish look bigger from the perspective of your body and the camera. <laughs> right? That's just, that's, that's free this morning, okay? But, but that's, that's what you do whenever you wanna take a good picture of a fish. But for those fish that come out of the water, they're no longer free. They're no longer, now they're bound because they're no longer living within the restriction that fits their nature. And the same is true for you and I. There's so many people within our culture who believe that in order to be free, I've got to cast off all these restraints. Whereas true biblical freedom is living with inside those restraints that fit who God has designed you to be. See, relativism, at the end of the day, it won't work. It won't work because it will actually leave you in more bondage rather than in with greater freedom. Now, there are some people who want to push back against that and say, well, of course, well, of course the Bible doesn't change, right? Of course the Bible is fixed and there's a permanence to it. The Bible doesn't change, but our understanding of the Bible changes. I've heard that recently. I was listening to a Th- the Think podcast from the local uh, NPR affiliate here in Dallas a couple of weeks back, and they were interviewing a pastor at a local Dallas church um, whose, whose congregation had just um, voted with the majority to go move toward an, what they would call an open and affirming congregation where they would receive peoples of all kinds of sexual orientations and different uh, sexual preferences in full membership of the life of their body. And over the course of that interview and that conversation, one of the things that he said on multiple occasions is that we, we believe the Bible is the word of God. We believe that it's true. Um, and the Bible doesn't change, but our understanding of the Bible changes. And we update it based upon the culture in which we live and the times that are, t- that, that are the way they are today. And, and I stood back from that conversation and kind of listening to it and just kind of thought a little bit about kind of the, the logic that they were using as they kind of talk through the Bible not being ever changing, but our understanding of the Bible changes. And let me just, I want to respond to that because some of you may be running into that in circles that you're in. Some of you may even be thinking that right now. And here's, here's how I respond to that is I would say, listen, of course our understanding of the Bible changes over the course of time in our lives. As we grow and we mature and we develop and we begin to understand more of what God is saying, of course our understanding of the Bible changes. We cannot help but have our understanding of the Bible change over the course of time. But the question is this, how is it changing? Where is it changing? Because when I, hear that, when I hear that phrase thrown around that the Bible doesn't change, but our understanding of the Bible changes, most often their understanding of the Bible is changing on the basis of some internal desire that they have, that they want to feel better about themselves for having. Right? So I, I want the Bible to affirm my desires. I want the Bible to conform to what I feel inside. Not, I want to get on my knees in prayer and ask God to conform my desires to the objective reality and the teachings of the scriptures. Right? Over the course of my life, I came to faith as a 15-year-old little scrawny runt in high school. And over the course of my life, My understanding of the Bible has changed, but for me, every time my understanding of the Bible has changed, it's come with confrontation of things that were within me, that God was digging up. Not affirmation of things that were within me that I was maybe trying to suppress. 
And so, of course, our understanding of the Bible changes. The question is, how is it changing? Is your understanding of the Bible changing to, to affirm those things that you feel inside or confront those things that you feel inside? See, the, the, for the Christian, true righteousness is much wider and broader than relativism. But it's also much deeper than legalism. It's also much deeper than legalism because the other way that we relax the commands of God is not only through relativism, but it's also through legalism. Now, this, for some of you, this seems so counterintuitive. You're like, I'm, I'm not sure what you mean by that. So let me explain to you what I mean. In the text, when Jesus is speaking to his disciples, he's talking to them, and he says to his followers who are gathered there around them in verse um, 19, he's, or in verse 20, I'm sorry, he says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So Jesus says, unless your righteousness is, surpasses the scribes and the Pharisees, you don't have a shot at getting into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to understand how shocking that was for the people of Jesus' day. That was astonishing in their minds. Because for them, the scribes and the Pharisees, man, they had it going on, right? They were meticulous about their observation of the law. Right, they had identified all 613 commands that God gives in the Old Testament. A section of them were prohibitions, things that God said you should avoid. A section of them were commands, things that God says you should do. And the Pharisees and scribes were so concerned about their external observance of the law that they said, here's what God has prohibited. Here's what God has commanded. I'm going to take three steps back from those commands. I'm going to layer in some guardrails and some boundaries so I don't even get close to violating the prohibition or the command that God has given. So they layered on top of those commands all the traditions of Judaism. And so the Pharisees and the scribes were meticulous about observing the guardrails outside of even the commands so to make sure they wouldn't violate one of them. And so when Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the religious leaders of their day, they're like, my brain hurts thinking about that for them. It would have blown their minds to think that they had to be better off than the scribes and the Pharisees. But what Jesus is saying is this. He's saying, if, if you've got to be better than them, then, then, then this righteousness that I'm talking about is not necessarily just wide and broad and expansive and encompasses area area of your life, but it's also deep. In other words, it goes beyond the surface scorecard stat level righteousness whereby you compare yourselves to others. Listen, I, I, I run sometimes and whenever I do, I strap on my phone on my arm and I've got a little app on my phone that tracks my distance and my pace and the shoes that I was wearing and the elevation changes and all those kinds of things. And every time I go out to run, I put that puppy on, push start and it tracks all that information for me. But within that app, I can also friend people who also have that app and who are running and exercising as well. 
And so some folks that I know who have that app, you know, we all friend each other and then you can kind of move into a section of the app where it shows you like your monthly stats up against their monthly stats, right? So you've run this far, this fast, you know, uh, this many days with this frequency and they've run this far, this fast, this many days with this frequency, right? So you can compare yourself from, from person to person like based on your stats and your scorecard. Like, and it makes you really feel good about yourself whenever you're beating everyone else. Right? I ran 70 miles this month. They only ran 40. Right? I, I, I ran hills. Right? I see the elevation rising. They just ran flat ground. Psh, wuss. <laughs> right? So you begin to compare yourself between yourself and other people, your, your stats and your scorecard. And Jesus says, that is not the kind of righteousness that I'm looking for. That is a stats-based, scorecard, surface-level righteousness. Jesus says it goes much deeper than that. In fact, it, tra- it goes all the way down to the heart. And it digs down into your mind and what you're thinking, into your motives and why you're doing what you're doing, not just what you're doing. And what Jesus is saying is that if you're going to get into the kingdom, if you're going to be one of God's citizens, if you're going to be his people, right, it goes back to that poverty of spirit. You've got to recognize you're not capable of this and you need God to do something in here, in your heart, to awaken you. And the Bible calls that the new birth, that you are born again. And in Ezekiel, God speaks through the prophet Ezekiel, it talks about there would be a day that would come in which God would write his commands on our hearts, not just tablets of stone, and he would put his spirit within us to empower us with the grace that we need to have now have new want-tos. So that the have-tos out here that we always thought were, were the religious observation of righteousness, I have to do this, and I have to do this, and I have to do this, would now become want-tos that get embedded deep within the heart and begin to overflow in the life. See, Jesus says that the true righteousness is so much wider than relativism, and it's so much deeper than legalism because it comes from a new heart. Has that happened to you? Or have you lived a life observing this scorecard, stat-keeping, comparison righteousness that is keeping the letter of the law but missing the heart? And I want you to know if that's you this morning, that what the Bible says that you need is to be born again through faith in Jesus Christ. That you would turn from your own efforts to try and keep the law and appease God and so that God would be, he would be acceptable to God. He would pat you on the back and rub your head kind of like your granddad did whenever you were real little because you could never do anything wrong. <laughs> but that all your effort to try and do that, that you would turn away from that. That's what repentance is, turning from that and going, God, I have nothing with which to impress you and nothing that I can do can please you. I'm gonna throw myself upon the mercy of God in Jesus Christ. And if the Holy Spirit is awakening you to that reality this morning that that's never happened for you, I want you to know what you, all you have to do is turn from your ability to, ple- to try and please God, your efforts to try and please God and look toward the way that he was pleased in Jesus Christ on your behalf and tr- put your trust and faith in him. Because he, listen, this is the last thing this morning, he is the point of the Bible. He is the point of the Bible. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 17. 
When Jesus speaks about the scriptures, Jesus says that he's not come to abolish the law or the prophets, which was Jesus' way of speaking of the Old Testament. But he says rather, he hasn't come to abolish them and do away with them, but he's come to fulfill them. He's come to complete them. See, many of us read the Bible like we read a newspaper, right? We open up right, the, the front page and we see the headlines that are there and we turn to the sports section to keep up with the box scores of all our favorite teams and we turn to the classifieds because we're looking for like a tractor to work our land or we turn to like we're having problems in our love life so we turn to Dear Abby and we like look through all of her issues there that she's got going on, her advice column and everything. We turn to these different sections thinking that we got this topic here and this topic here and this topic here but the Bible is not meant to be read like a newspaper going from page to page and topic to topic but the Bible is meant to be read like a novel or a narrative or a story that goes from beginning to end and from beginning to end I want you to know that Jesus is the point of the Bible while it has a fixed permanence and it's meant to be practiced from a heart that's overflowing with love for God that's been born again that the way that you get born again is by seeing that Jesus is the point of all of this from Genesis to Revelation and throwing yourself upon his mercy Jesus says he's come to fulfill the Old Testament, but how has he done that? And quickly, as we close, I want to give you several ways that he's fulfilled everything that's been written or will one day fulfill everything that has been written. Jesus fulfills the doctrinal teaching of the Old Testament. Listen, the great doctrines of Christianity are, in, are one, one theologian said it this way, in the Old Testament, they're like a bud. In the New Testament, they're like a flower, right? They're connected to each other in the same way that a bud is connected to the flower. And there's beauty and mystery as it unfolds in the New Testament, but that all is sourced back there in the old. The great doctrine of substitution, of somebody taking our sins upon them in our place so that we might receive mercy as opposed to the wrath of God is embedded in the Old Testament in the sacrificial system. As every year, the Day of Atonement, they would have two lambs and one, they would confess the sins of the people over and they would send out into the wilderness. It'd be the scapegoat that took the guilt and the shame of the people away. Another one, they would confess the sins of the people and they would cut its throat and they would bleed out and they would sprinkle the blood of that lamb upon the mercy seat of God and the Ark of the Covenant and the Holy of Holies, thereby turning aside the wrath of God. And if you fast forward to the book of Hebrews, what you're gonna see is that Jesus does both. That he himself bears your guilt and shame as he was crucified outside the city, led away from the city. As he took the sins of the people to the cross, but he also bore the wrath of God for us to turn it aside that we may not know God as a father who is merciful and kind. See, these great doctrines of the New Testament don't just show up in Romans, but they're there in Leviticus. Jesus not only fulfills the doctrines of the Old Testament and brings those shadows to their full substance, but he also fulfills the prophetic predictions of the Old Testament. As the suffering servant from Isaiah, he fulfills that completely as he is beaten and battered beyond recognition before he is sent to the cross. He is the one whom Moses speaks of in Genesis chapter 3 who would be of the seed of the woman who would crush the head of the serpent even though his heel would be struck. That he would deliver a fatal blow to Satan's sin, suffering and death at the cross. 
that Jesus is the one who will be born, the Messiah to be born in the city of Bethlehem, of the town of David, of the line and lineage of David. He is the righteous branch that would grow out of the stump of Jesse. He fulfills these prophetic predictions throughout the Old Testament. But not only that, but Jesus fulfills the entire ethical teaching of the Old Testament. Some people might call this the moral law. In fact, in Galatians 4, we find that Jesus was born as one under the law. In other words, bound by all of its regulations. Jesus was born under the law and in Matthew 3.15 we see that Jesus comes to fulfill all righteousness. That he lived the perfect life that none of us could live in our place and for us. So whenever God looks upon him in his death, burial, and resurrection, not only does his, 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 uh, his, uh, the penalty of our sin turned aside from us onto him, but also all of his positive righteousness is now credited to us. And so whenever he looks at us, he sees his son and he's pleased. That is good news. He fulfills all the ethical teaching, the moral law of the Old Testament, but not only that, Jesus fulfills every theme that ever arises from the pages of the Old Testament. Right, so when you read the Old Testament, some of you are in it right now in this Bible reading plan that we're doing and you're like in the weeds of Leviticus. <laughs> oh, man, I'm not, okay. But if Jesus is really the point of the Bible as he says he is here, he also says this elsewhere in Luke chapter 23. If he's the point of the Bible, then whenever you read about Adam in Genesis chapters one, two, and three, you not only see that Adam, see Adam had this test in the garden. God said, trust me about the tree. Adam couldn't trust him about the tree, but he took of the fruit and he ate. And whenever he ate, his eyes were open. He realized he was naked and he was lived in shame and fear and ran from God. And God came pursuing him. But there was another Adam who came. Paul speaks of Jesus being the second Adam. And God put him in the middle of the garden. He says, trust me about the tree. Will you go to the cross? And Jesus says, yes, I will trust you about the tree. And he goes to the cross. See, so that everything that Adam undid in Genesis, Jesus is redoing and restoring. You look at Joseph's story in the Old Testament in Genesis you see, he was hated by his brothers, despised by them, but beloved of his father. Special son, the coat of many colors, right? Dolly Parton talks about that, doesn't she, somewhere? <laughs> He's got this coat of many colors. But the story's not about the coat, the story. About a son beloved by his father, hated by his brother, sold down the river, despised who ends up in the hands of the most powerful man on the face of the earth at that moment, ends up rescuing and saving all of his people. There's another man who came and did that as well. His name is Jesus, who is beloved, the one and only beloved son of the Father, who was despised and hated by his brothers, beaten, mocked, and scorned, and crucified, who would be buried and resurrected and ascended and who would save all of his people. Jesus is the point of the Bible. And if you miss the point, then you will be crushed by the practice. And so you will be tempted to pull back on the permanence. Do you see scripture the same way Jesus does? My hope and my prayer is that we would, that you would. So you would see its permanence and you would, you would see the call to practice it and you begin to conform your life to it. 
And so you wouldn't try and change the scripture to fit your desires, but you would try to get on your knees before God and open his word where grace is promised to come. And you would feast on it, not tower over it, but it would tower over you. And you would say, God, would you conform my desires to your revealed will within your word? And would you help me to celebrate the fact that even though I was unable to keep all of this, you kept it for me and in my place. And so it fuels this love for you in my heart. That gives rise to new motives and a new mind. This is a sure and steady foundation for your life. The very words of God. Will you build on them? Not just on your experience and not just on your your, your intuitive intellect and your reasoning abilities and capacities. But build on the revealed will and word of God even when it seems it doesn't make sense.